Good afternoon and welcome to the Council of American Ambassadors Roundtable Discussion with Ambassador Kenneth Juster. I'm Kathleen Sheehan, the Executive Director of the Council, and there's just two housekeeping notes I'd like to go over. First, um, we're going to be recording today's conversation, so those members of the Council who can't watch it live can watch it later on our website. And second, we strongly encourage questions from the audience, and to submit a question, all you have to do is use your Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom screen. And with that, I am very happy to turn the floor over to the Council's Senior Vice President, Ambassador Philip Hughes, who's going to introduce today's speaker. Ambassador Hughes, it's all yours. Thanks very much, Kathleen, and welcome everyone to this afternoon's uh, Ambassadors Roundtable with uh, our recently uh, uh, returned Ambassador to India, uh, Ambassador Kenneth Juster. Uh, it's my privilege and pleasure to introduce Ambassador Juster today uh, and to moderate the discussion. So it will be my uh, chore, if you would, uh, later on to uh, pose the questions you submit in the way that Kathleen just described to Ambassador Juster and perhaps group them a bit uh, and maybe even have to kick off the discussion to, uh, to get the Q&A session going. Um, it's hard to describe exactly, Ambassador Juster's distinguished career of public service and private sector experience. Um, it's hard to say whether he uh, had a distinguished career of public service with intermittent roles in the private sector or a distinguished private sector career with intermittent and equally or more distinguished roles in public service. But after graduating uh, Harvard College, and the Harvard Kennedy School of Government with a, uh, a Master of Public Policy degree and a JD degree from Harvard Law School, uh, he became a senior partner in the Washington law firm of Arnold and Porter. But in the administration of George H.W. Bush, he was first uh, deputy and senior advisor to Deputy Secretary of State Lawrence Eagleburger, where he played an important role in helping keep Israel on sides and uh, uh, in the right posture uh, in Gulf War I. Uh, and then at the end, toward the end of that administration, he served as acting counselor of the State Department. Uh, in the George W. Bush administration, he served from, uh, for the first term as the Undersecretary of Commerce for the Bureau of Industry and Security, uh, which has responsibility for both export controls and also the health and welfare of uh, our defense industrial base, among other functions. Uh, in the uh, Trump administration, he was initially uh, the deputy assistant to the president for international economic affairs and deputy director of the National Economic Council and subsequently appointed ambassador to India. And that's the service we're going to mostly discuss today. Although, as you're about to see, there is an important interplay in Ambassador Juster's role in India with his earlier responsibilities uh, in the White House and in the Commerce Department. Uh, so with that, I should also mention that Ambassador Juster uh, has uh, uh, received the highest honors uh, that are bestowable by uh, several of our government's cabinet departments, including the Department of State's Distinguished Service Award, the Department of Defense Distinguished Public Service Award, the Director of National Intelligence Exceptional Service Award, 
and the Department of Energy's Excellence Award. So with that, let me turn the, the, uh, the forum over to Ambassador Juster for what I think is going to be a most enlightening discussion of US-India relations of recent years. Ken? Well, thank you very much, uh, Ambassador Hughes. And it's a real pleasure to be here. And I've seen the participant list uh, uh, for this meeting and I'm uh, both uh, honored that so many important people are joining us and also a bit intimidated by their knowledge of the subject that I'm gonna be discussing. But I thought what I'd do is provide a little bit of the background on US-India relations and how it's evolved over the years, including during my time as ambassador and then also touch briefly on the COVID-19 situation in India before uh, taking questions uh, from uh, others uh, on this line. Uh, uh, you know, most people don't realize that India is not an ally of the United States. I think there's a natural tendency of people who aren't experts in US-Indian relations to think of India as an ally, but India has always been a non-aligned country since its independence in 1947. In fact, it led the non-aligned movement during the Cold War. And while we've had diplomatic relations with India, with the United States since 1946, even before it became independent, for much of the time, the relationship was somewhat cool. Uh, we actually, during the Cold War, leaned more toward Pakistan uh, and the Indians signed in 1971, a friendship uh, treaty with the Soviet Union and uh, subsequently purchased much of their military equipment and hardware from the Soviets. And it was only really after the Cold War and then really by about 2000 that the relationship began to change. As you may recall, in 1998, India tested some nuclear devices and that, that actually led to widespread sanctions against India that were very severe and set the relationship back even further. And, and prior to that, you know, a lot of the relationship was really around developmental assistance, agricultural assistance and the like. But right at the end of his term as president, President Clinton took a trip to India to try to uh, unfreeze the relationship. Uh, and then when President George W. Bush came into office in 2001, he and Indian Prime Minister Vashpai really felt that this relationship needed to be transformed in the world's oldest democracy, the United States, and its largest democracy, India, should really be in better terms, especially as our people-to-people -people relations were increasing and business relations were starting to pick up a bit as well. You may recall the role that Indian uh, engineers played in the Y2K uh, situation at the end of uh, uh, the last century. Uh, and one of the things that India uh, wanted access to as part of this transformation of the relationship was sensitive U.S. technology. And as was mentioned, I was undersecretary uh, in the Commerce Department in 2001 in charge of uh, all of the dual-use technology, technology that has both a military and civilian application. And so at that point became very much involved in the U.S.-Indian relationship in both forming a high technology cooperation group that I co-chaired with India's foreign secretary and then uh, working with the administration to develop the next steps in strategic partnership that really laid out a pathway to what ultimately became the civil nuclear deal that was announced uh, in 2005 and completed in 2008. 
And so I've been very much involved in the U.S.-India relationship really since this period of transformation, uh, subsequently in the private sector when I was an executive at a software company named Salesforce.com and then later an investor at uh, Warburg Pincus. I also was extensively involved uh, in India. So when the opportunity arose in uh, 2017 uh, to be considered for the ambassadorship to India, I was uh, quite interested and uh, ultimately was confirmed in November 2017. Uh, the US mission in India is our third largest mission in the world. We have, uh, including the embassy, the four consulates and both Americans and uh, locally employed staff, about 2,500 people uh, that work there, spread out over the five uh, locations. Uh, we have uh, an American school that we operate uh, in uh, New Delhi, another one in Mumbai, and another one in uh, Chennai. Uh, and so it's a quite extensive operation. And the entire relationship between the United States and India has been a increasingly important strategic partnership. Uh, as I said, not an ally, not an adversary, but a strategic partner. And we really work on virtually every issue under the sun at this point in time, whether it be defense, nonproliferation, counterterrorism, cybersecurity, trade, investment, energy, the environment, the science and technology, agriculture, education. There are now over 200,000 Indians studying in the United States, uh, space, oceans, uh, and so much more. We process over a million visas a year uh, at the uh, embassy and throughout the mission in India. Uh, and uh, we have a constant stream of visitors. There are close to 2,000 American companies that operate uh, in India. And of course, you have uh, the Indo-Pacific Command in Hawaii that has a steady stream of people coming in as well. And so when I got to the embassy, one of the challenges really is to uh, both get to know the community and make sure that everyone there is pulling in one direction. And you do that by trying to establish uh, priorities, which I tried to do at the outset uh, with a, a major address that I gave, uh, not just uh, for the mission, but for the country. Uh, in January of 2018. And what I'd like to do is just sort of touch on what I thought were some of the key areas that we really uh, uh, were very ambitious on, and I think achieved a good amount, uh, and explain how that is, I think, being continued with the Biden administration. I would say that uh, US-India relations are one area where there's been tremendous continuity uh, in US policy since 2000, 2001. Uh, across administrations, uh, uh, despite the political parties, really in both countries, uh, it's continued to move in an upward uh, direction, uh, sometimes uh, with a little uh, blip in the curve here and there, but uh, overall very positive. Uh, if I can touch on a few of the key areas, one was simply in the diplomatic area. Uh, one of the first things we did was really uh, Put uh, a concrete, uh, put in concrete the concept of the Indo-Pacific region. The Japanese had raised the Indo-Pacific uh, Prime Minister Abe several years earlier, but it really hadn't taken hold. And one of the things that uh, the President, the Secretary of State, and I did was to really talk about this region and a free and open Indo-Pacific as critical 
uh, to the future uh, security and stability and prosperity of the world and obviously of the United States within that. Uh, and we made a big effort to uh, identify the Indo-Pacific as really the most dynamic region in my view in the world, the place where the center of gravity of international affairs is really moving. Uh, it's got the countries with the largest populations, the largest and most dynamic economies, uh, tremendous natural resources, and uh, more than 50% estimated between 60-70% of international trade goes through the waters of the Indo-Pacific. And during the uh, four, three and a half years I was in office, this concept really became accepted uh, by all countries except maybe China and Russia. But the Indians uh, adopted it. Prime Minister Modi gave a big speech uh, at the Shangri-La conference on the Indo-Pacific. Uh, everyone was uh, emphasized the importance of ASEAN centrality to this region and the ASEAN countries have adopted the Indo-Pacific. And you see the Europeans talking now about the Indo-Pacific. One of the issues when the new administration came in was whether they would in fact revert to Asia Pacific or talk about Indo-Pacific. And uh, they sure enough uh, have continued with Indo-Pacific and in fact created a position at the National Security Council for a coordinator of Indo-Pacific affairs. And what's important about this concept, it really ties the Indian Ocean to the Pacific Ocean and makes that area integral and uh, emphasizes the importance of maritime security uh, for India, for the United States, and for the region uh, more broadly. Uh, another important concept that we really pushed was the Quad. This was uh, four countries, uh, United States, India, Japan, and Australia, working together on issues of common concern. The Quad had first come about in 2000, I think it was 2004, when the tsunami in that region occurred, but it disbanded shortly thereafter uh, when the Chinese expressed displeasure with it and some of the countries involved uh, did not want to get on the wrong side of China. And so the, the Quad really went into uh, disuse, but we worked hard to revive it first at a working level, at the assistant secretary level, but uh, gradually had a ministerial in September of uh, 2019 among uh, the four ministers in New York. And then even during COVID in October of 2020, had another in-person meeting of the uh, four uh, foreign ministers in Tokyo. And the Quad uh, focuses on not just disaster relief and humanitarian assistance, but pandemic relief on cybersecurity issues, on getting vaccines out to the region. Uh, and on maritime security, the Indians have always been a bit uh, concerned about uh, discussing defense issues or certainly uh, talking about them publicly because they don't want to unnecessarily irritate the Chinese. I can get to later uh, the relationship between India and China, but uh, suffice it to say at this point, India is in a very different geographical and historical position relative to China than the United States. They have China on its northern border. There have been problems there. In fact, right now there is a large uh, amassing of troops by China on that border. And so the Indians are very careful not to want to be seen as forming an alliance or a group that would try to contain uh, the Chinese. Uh, the third point I would highlight uh, on the diplomatic side was the creation of the two plus two 
ministerial uh, set of meetings in which you get the foreign ministers and the defense ministers uh, together to really focus on issues of strategic importance. And all of these uh, concepts, the Indo-Pacific, the Quad, and the two plus two are continuing on in the Biden administration. In fact, President Biden has already had a Quad summit meeting. It was virtually uh, in March, and they'll have a in-person Quad meeting uh, later this year, as well as a two plus two uh, meeting. So this was an important uh, advance of the relationship overall. Another pillar, obviously, is the defense pillar. And what we focused on was trying to get enabling agreements done between India and the United States. These are foundational agreements that enable greater cooperation between the US military and another country, including in secure communications and providing sophisticated intelligence and other types of materials that you couldn't otherwise get access to and in logistics support and the like. And we completed the remaining, there had already been two foundational agreements done and we completed the remaining two uh, during my tenure. One was on secure communications and the other was on sharing geospatial uh, information uh, and data. Uh, we also signed an important agreement that was an annex to an information agreement that allowed not just our governments to share sensitive information, but our industrial bases to do so. So this could increase cooperation between business companies wanting to do co-production with defense uh, equipment. We also increased uh, the number and intensity of exercises we do on the military side, including for the first time going beyond single service exercises to a tri-service exercise uh, with the Indians. And we expanded what's known as the Malabar exercise that included India, uh, Japan, and the United States to include Australia as well, in effect, the quadrilateral countries. We held that uh, in 2020. India now has more exercises with the United States, military exercises, than it does with any other uh, country. We also uh, enhanced uh, military exchanges and for the first time posted liaison office officers at each other's uh, main military facilities. So all of this continued to elevate the military relationship, but that relationship has challenges because as I said, India is not an ally. It still purchases uh, equipment from Russia and that will ultimately potentially put limitations on how interoperable we will get with India in terms of our equipment and operations, how much we can uh, really work together uh, in the region. And yet at the same time, that's balanced against the increased challenges that India is facing from China and its need, quite frankly, in my opinion, to work more closely with the United States because we're the only country that can really help India uh, in the crunch to balance out its uh, capabilities against the Chinese. Uh, another area that was one of continual focus was the economic relationship. Uh, uh, the United States and India's economic relationship, trade and investment has grown steadily since when I first got involved in 2001. It was about $16 billion of bilateral trade. Uh, by the time I left uh, right before COVID, it was up to $146 billion. So that's a substantial uh, increase in bilateral trade. And investment also has increased substantially both ways. You now have a number of Indian companies that are investing in the United States. That said, and, and one of my minister counselors for commercial affairs would always say, it's never been better because the relationship has continued to 
improve and move up uh, in terms of its projection, but it still, in my view, falls far short of what the two economies of the size of the United States and India should have. Uh, the United States would love to continue to see an opening of the Indian economy. Uh, I would say, unfortunately, in the last few years, pro probably from about 2000, even from 1991, when India first opened its economy, upwards to maybe 2017 or 18, the economy was continually and gradually opening, not as quickly as I think would be beneficial for the Indians, but was opening nonetheless. From about 2018 onward, we've seen, unfortunately, some directions toward higher tariffs and other barriers to trade. And a real issue will be uh, in the post-COVID environment, whether countries will draw the lesson that they need to become self-sufficient and therefore cut out some of its interaction with the rest of the world or can continue to have uh, interdependencies, but perhaps with a closer, more trusted circle of countries. And this is still an open issue for India. India has uh, pulled out of trade discussions it was having with other countries in Asia on a regional comprehensive economic partnership after seven years of negotiation. It decided it did not want to be in an agreement that uh, had China in it because they were concerned that China would dominate uh, the relationship and they were all already running a trade deficit with the Chinese. But India still has not uh, elevated our relationship with the United States to a free trade agreement or with the Europeans or the UK. And at some point it really needs to decide what its attitude is toward free trade. Free trade. I think uh, if you look at India's history, when it's opened up, its economy has flourished and certainly the history of countries in that region uh, in East Asia has shown that open economies have been the most successful in terms of growing and prospering and benefiting their populations. But this is still an open issue and one that the new administration will need to, to grapple with, hopefully to expand trade and investment. But if it turns out that the, the economies are not uh, as open as we'd like, not to let that issue infect the rest of the relationship. I should say that the United States is India's largest trading partner. India is our ninth largest one. So it would seem to me uh, wise for the Indians to try to lock in that relationship through some sort of uh, trade agreement. Uh, another area that uh, changed a lot during the time I was ambassador was energy. Uh, previously, the United States did not export much energy uh, to India. Uh, primarily it was coal, but we had the first exports of uh, oil and of liquefied natural gas uh, during my tenure, and those have both gone up uh, increasingly over the years. And the United States is now an important energy supplier to India. Uh, one issue that will be faced in the new administration is whether the push for climate uh, change will mean that the U.S. cuts back on its exports of coal, clean coal, uh, oil, and liquefied natural gas to India. I think this would be a mistake, and the Indians, quite frankly, no matter how much they might aspire to move toward renewables, and they certainly do in solar and wind, that's not going to happen overnight. They have enormous energy needs, and they're going to need to keep using hydrocarbons uh, in the short to medium term to satisfy uh, that. A final area I'll just mention uh, is the area of health. Uh, there's for many years been uh, extensive health cooperation between the United States uh, and India. Uh, we've 
provided lots of assistance uh, in a fight against AIDS, HIV AIDS. We've worked with them on a program to stamp out tuberculosis. Uh, we were working with them. I helped open a antimicrobial center hub uh, in India uh, to try to study antimicrobial resistance. Uh, and we worked extensively with them on COVID-19 issues. I actually had 34 people on the payroll of the uh, Center for Disease Control and Prevention at my embassy in uh, New Delhi. And these folks were closely to the Indians on uh, a range of issues, including uh, how to do contact tracing, uh, therapeutics, uh, uh, ways to uh, test for COVID, and ultimately uh, working uh, our, our industries on vaccines. Uh, India, as you may know, has uh, the uh, country that produces more than half of the world's vaccines, and we really developed them. And so there have been partnerships in this uh, area as well. A lot of other issues that we worked on uh, uh, over the years, but those are some of the highlights. And I would say again that uh, while there has been a lot of criticism uh, that uh, much, much of the Trump administration's foreign policy was disruptive and uh, the new administration is changing the way that relation, those relationships uh, unfolded. And President Biden certainly talked about that at the G7 summit and the NATO ministerial. I think India is an area uh, where there is uh, tremendous continuity. There has been, as I said, from administration to administration uh, throughout the last 20 years. And we're already seeing that with the current administration uh, as well. Let me just conclude by briefly touching on the COVID situation. Uh, when uh, COVID first uh, really uh, spread rapidly, there was a severe lockdown in India. Uh, this lasted for uh, several weeks, and it was, I think, the most severe perhaps of any major country, in part because the Indian healthcare system is quite underdeveloped, and the Indians really needed to use the six weeks or so that they had of the severe lockdown to build up their supplies of protective equipment, of oxygen, of uh, 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 other uh, medical supplies, of hospital beds, of ventilators. Uh, and they were able to do this. And the lockdown did have a devastating impact on the economy in a country such as India, that uh, where many people live on subsistence wages, the lockdown was quite uh, devastating. Uh, but it did at the same time prepare the healthcare system for dealing with the COVID cases as they rose rapidly during this initial uh, spike and phase of, of COVID-19. Uh, but by the time I departed India in January of this year, the cases had really come down substantially uh, and things were under control. The healthcare facilities never got overwhelmed in India. And it looked like things were in a very, going in a very positive direction. Unfortunately, this created, I think, some complacency. And uh, the Indians really discarded a lot of their cautions. And in a country of their density, it's a country that's about a third the size of the United States, uh, and yet has four times our population, more than four times our population. Uh, in a country of that size, uh, you can't really let down your guard. And they did, they had state elections in four states and one union territory in which there were hundreds of political rallies with no masks being worn and even the prime minister participating without masks. It was a major religious festivity, uh, 
called Kumela, which normally would have happened in 2022, but the government moved it up to 2021. This uh, draws millions of people uh, as it did to the city of Haridwar. And again, without masks. And so these, I think, became super spreader events. And you saw in April and May, a tremendous spike in the COVID situation really quite uh, tragically. Uh, you know, earlier people thought that maybe India's young population, which you have 65% of the people under the age of 35, uh, helped in the fact that COVID did not spread as rapidly as people might have thought, or as in a, as deadly a manner, they had a lower mortality rate. There was also the theory that uh, people had been exposed to SARS, the SARS virus in 2003, and perhaps it built up immunity, and that there are so many other uh, diseases in India that, again, the immune systems may have been uh, quite good in, in preventing COVID. But clearly, this second spike uh, uh, of uh, COVID-19 uh, was to the contrary of these theories, and it turns out that there's a variant that seems to be more susceptible in younger people and even more deadly. And it's been very tragic. The numbers of cases have spiked up to over 400,000 a day. Now I think it's down to about 100,000 uh, again. And uh, uh, the city, the situation in the cities seems to, has, seems to have peaked out and is uh, improving. It's not as clear in terms of what's happening in the rural areas. And of course, if uh, COVID 19 spreads rapidly in the rural areas, the healthcare system is even more underdeveloped and the consequences will be more deadly. Uh, and now I think the Indians, uh, having learned the lesson of this second wave, uh, are preparing uh, for a potential third wave and making sure that the medical situation in terms of hospital beds, supplies, and otherwise is up to dealing with it. Anyway, let me stop there. I know I've got a lot of experts in the audience, but I wanted to give you a overview of the evolution of the relationship and also of the most recent uh, situation of COVID-19. Thank you. Uh, Ken, thank you very much for such a comprehensive overview of a fascinating assignment. And already we have questions, predictably, filtering in from your colleagues. Uh, and uh, the first comes from Harry Harris, our recently returned ambassador to South Korea. Uh, who says, congratulations on a fabulous job in India. Can you comment on CATSA, C-A-A-T-S-A, -A -A, and whether we'll create a carve-out for India? Okay, well, first of all, it's a pleasure to have Harry on the line. When I first went to office, he was the uh, person who was in charge of the Pacific Command, which later became the Indo-Pacific Command, and he visited me uh, in that capacity, there's a annual event in India called the Ricina Dialogue, and Harry had been a guest at that on a couple of occasions and uh, was a newsmaker as well in terms of some of his views on the geopolitical situation. He then became a colleague uh, in uh, Korea and was delighted to have him there. And we were looking forward to hosting him in April of 2020, but the COVID situation prevented that. What he's referring to is a legislation that was passed in the United States, uh, CATSA, uh, I don't remember the exact, uh, you know, what the acronym stands for. It's, it's an anti-terrorism uh, set of sanctions directed primarily at Russia, but also at 
North Korea and Iran. Uh, and uh, under this sanction, there's one sanction that if a country is obtaining significant military equipment from Russia, it can be subject to sanctions from the United States. There's a menu of, I think, 12 sanctions, and one has to choose five from that list. And the issue now that's being focused on, and when the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin went to India, it came up, is whether India's announced purchase of the S-400 missile defense system from Russia will be a situation in which the US will apply the CATSA sanctions. And I've now written an article in which I said this would be a tremendous mistake, uh, and I can quickly explain why. Uh, CATSA was enacted at a time when India was already far along with its discussions with Russia on this defense system, which it requires for both dealing with China and with Pakistan, and less for missiles than really for aircraft that might come over its territory. Uh, it had sought getting a system from the United States uh, during the Obama administration. The US at that time had no interest in selling a missile defense system to India. That's why it undertook its negotiations with the Russians. Uh, and we don't really have technology that's quite comparable to what the S-400 is. And so the Indians had announced this as a deal prior to CATSA even being enacted. And it is really from their perspective, a done deal. And uh, I think it would be a mistake in terms of all the things I've discussed about how we've been building up the strategic partnership to now sanction India, even if we give them only superficial sanctions, it really undercuts the trust that we've tried to develop and the reliability, especially where there's been a history in the past. I mentioned the 1998 sanctions and the earlier sanctions in 1975 between the United States, and, and it won't accomplish anything. It's not going to prevent the Indians from purchasing the S-400, and so it won't achieve its objective of trying to stop Russian equipment from uh, going elsewhere, and nor will it uh, enhance our relationship with India. There was actually a carve-out that was created uh, when Secretaries Mattis and Pompeo worked with the Hill, and you can give a waiver on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, there's also been a concern that sanctions were applied against Turkey for purchasing the S-400. Uh, I would argue that Turkey, unfortunately, is an ally that is going in the wrong direction. Uh, so it's a country that should really be completely in sync with us, but instead is purchasing Russian equipment and quite frankly, doing other activities that are against our interest. And so ultimately after significant warning was given to Turkey and they went ahead anyway, for a NATO ally to purchase that equipment against our wishes uh, is a situation that I think is quite different than a partner that is moving toward us in our direction to sanction them. So it's a long answer, but it's a very complex issue. Uh, I think there is a good likelihood that the US will waive cancer, but they should do it sooner rather than later so we don't get all the negatives of hanging the sanctions cloud over India during this time. Thanks, uh, Ken. Uh, the next question uh, has come from uh, former uh, Ambassador Diana Lady Dugan, uh, who says, excellent presentation, but please give us insights 
with regard to the elephant not in the corner, Prime Minister Modi. Where do you see his ongoing impact and legacy in key areas? Well, again, Prime Minister Modi uh, is a tremendously uh, charismatic and popular leader within India. Uh, he had been the uh, chief minister of the state of Gujarat uh, with some controversy. There were riots there in 2003, I believe it was, uh, communal riots, and uh, many Muslims were killed, and he was criticized for not doing uh, really that much to prevent this. Uh, in fact, his visa was lifted for traveling to the United States. Uh, and uh, subsequently, he became prime minister in 2014. At that time, he needed a coalition to have a majority uh, in his parliament. Uh, but when he was reelected in 2019, he got an absolute majority, which is unusual uh, in recent years in India and has become a very popular leader. Even uh, during COVID, when he had the COVID situation, he had the Chinese on the border uh, uh, giving uh, problems to India and the economy was uh, uh, in a bad situation. It is in a bad situation now. His popularity was rising. Uh, it's obviously taken a bit of a hit in the second COVID wave, but it's still on the national level unrivaled by anyone else. What makes him controversial is his party, the BJP, is known as a pro-Hindu party and uh, has enacted certain uh, provisions or legislation or taken actions that, while each one individually, one can uh, talk about in a way that reasonable people could say it was acceptable or not, when put together, they start to raise concerns about uh, whether there will be less tolerance for Muslims, and also, quite frankly, whether uh, the democracy in India is becoming challenged by pressures from the government on the media, on civil society, and the like. And that's really the question as to, you know, what, what, where do you, how do you view uh, Prime Minister Modi? On a personal level, uh, very uh, enjoyable uh, and, and had a good relationship with him. And he's a very impressive individual. And I think it really remains to be seen as to uh, where India will go on some of these issues. It's a dynamic democracy. It's a country, it's many countries rolled up into one extremely diverse. I don't think any leader can legislate out the diversity in India, uh, but there are concerns that uh, Freedom House uh, said it's now an illiberal democracy. Uh, and uh, said that freedom has lessened there. And this will be one of the challenges of the Biden administration. The members of President Biden and Vice President Harris have criticized certain Indian uh, social and political policies previously, whether they'll do that in office or discuss these as we did more quietly behind the scenes uh, remains to be seen. I will say that the State Department puts out reports on human rights, religious freedom, human trafficking, and they've been very tough uh, the last several years, and I assume they will continue to be tough, but this will be an issue uh, going forward uh, as to whether India will uh, continue the vibrancy that it's had in the past in its democratic institutions. Um, well, you're continuing in that vein a little bit, Ken. Uh, certainly, uh, in the US and actually in a number of other countries as well, 
Uh, we've seen a recent trend a bit toward uh, identity politics or identity group politics. And the Indian subcontinent is certainly a place with lots of different identity groups. Uh, uh, the Indian democracy kind of mediates those, uh, those groups, I guess you could say electorally. Um, Prime Minister Modi's BJP has been characterized by some, perhaps not only by its detractors, as uh, pursuing a Hindu first policy, which is sometimes interpreted as also as, as a corollary, the Muslim last policy, which is kind of in contrast with, actually it's a bit counter to the trend of the way identity group politics are thought about in other countries where explicitly favoring a, uh, a numerical majority in the country or something like that would be considered sort of politically outré. Uh, how should we understand Modi's uh, ethnic politics, if you would, and the way he practices it in India? Uh, again, this is a very, it's, a, it, it's an issue that people like to simplify, but it's very complicated for a couple of reasons. First, as you've said, if you look at the Indian constitution, which is I think the, the lengthiest constitution in the world, it's a you know, book about maybe that thick, uh, it explicitly makes all sorts of provisions for different castes, for different religions, for different tribes. Uh, and so, and it, it explicitly sets aside seats in parliament for people. And indeed one of the issues in Jammu and Kashmir, this was the state that the government took over and made it into a ter union territory rather than a state. Uh, but this was a state that was given special protections uh, when it joined the Indian Union uh, in the late 1940s. And uh, they were supposed to be temporary protections as it, they, that state became integrated into India. And it was still, uh, under the same provisions 70 plus years later. And so when Prime Minister Modi and his government took away the state designation, took part of that state Ladakh and made it into a separate union territory and people viewed this, and I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong as an anti-Muslim step, you could also use some of the standards that we have in our country as well, wait a second, what he was saying was there shouldn't be special protections for this group or that group. It should be everyone is Indian and they should all be treated equally. In fact, there were women who didn't have property rights if they married a non-citizen uh, of Kashmir and, and things of that nature. So there were some things about it that from our standards would be liberal and other things about it that were uh, troubling. It was also troubling the way it was done in which the government took over uh, state, you know, uh, central government controlled the state, it disbanded the state government. And so there were some irregularities in, in, in that perhaps. But the point I'm trying to make is that uh, that was a very popular move by the prime minister, support of over 80% of the country. Uh, and so, in a democracy, you can argue, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, that on the one hand, everything he's doing or many of the things he's doing has the support of the people. On the other hand, is it oppressing minorities and, and the rights of others? And so there's this tension in India uh, between some of the issues that we regard as you shouldn't give special rights or privileges to different sects and 
different castes and different tribes and different religions uh, to is this really oppressing unfairly a minority group? And as I said earlier, uh, there's a concern that it's tilting toward the latter, but it's, it's a complicated issue because just as you said, uh, Phil, we're trying to move away from you know, identity politics and more toward a sense of cohesion of people all being treated equally and all being considering themselves citizens of the country. So I, I, I know it's a long answer, but these are issues that have a lot of permutations to them. And uh, it's not easy to just say black and white, it's this way or that way. Uh, fair enough, but a very thorough answer. Thank you so much. Um, continuing, uh, we have a few more minutes with you. And while ah, uh, A.B. Culverhouse has sent in a question. So let me share that with you. Uh, what is the current status of the border clashes between India and China? Does the PRC still occupy additional disputed territory beyond what it occupied a year ago? Uh, that's the question from our former ambassador to Australia. Well, again, it's good to uh, hear from AB, who I've known for many years, both when we both uh, practice law, as well as in his more recent role as a member of the Quad uh, with Australia. Uh, what happened in, uh, you know, India and China have never had a clearly delineated border. Uh, and in fact, they've fought, they fought a war in 1962 and never delineated the border after that. And they've had a number of agreements and protocols to try to manage this issue without clearly establishing where the lines uh, lie. Uh, the Indians thought that this issue could be compartmentalized and and managed and the relationship with China could move forward uh, nonetheless. But in recent years, the Chinese have uh, been very aggressive on the border issue. And uh, what AB is referring to is in 2020, they were doing some military exercises in the vicinity of the, uh, this area, but suddenly turned the troops and pushed them toward India and had 50,000 troops on India's northern border and had taken contested territory in what's known the line of actual control. Uh, the Indians had to mobilize themselves. Uh, and remember, we're up in the Himalayas, 15, 16,000 feet. It's not easy to do so. Uh, and they also amassed troops in the order of about 50,000. And for the first time ever, since in the last 45 years, there was actually a military clash and uh, 20 Indians died and an unknown number of uh, Chinese did. In fact, that happened in June of last year. I think it's about the one year anniversary just about now of that incident. Uh, this area became very tense. Uh, the Indians were concerned about the Chinese permanently stationing themselves here. The Chinese had built up a fair amount of infrastructure in the region. The Indians more recently had built infrastructure that might have uh, angered the Chinese and let them do this. The Chinese may have been trying to indicate to India they shouldn't be getting as close to the United States as the Chinese felt they were. The Chinese never indicated exactly what their intentions were, but the Indians took some higher ground in the region and they were gradually able to negotiate a disengagement in one area along a strategic lake uh, uh, in the Ladakh area and they've disengaged, but there are other areas where they still have not, and there's not been a demobilization. Uh, so there's still, I don't know if it's still 50,000, but significant troops 
uh, in the region on both sides. There's infrastructure being built. This is gonna be, I think, for a long haul. Let's shatter the trust that the Indians have for the Chinese. And this is an area that's gotta be watched closely because you have in this vicinity, nuclear armed uh, China, nuclear armed India and nuclear armed Pakistan. I mean, the worst nightmare for the Indians would be a two front confrontation with the Chinese and the Pakistanis. They've been able to reach some agreements recently with Pakistan to try to control cross-border terrorism. But uh, the bottom line is that this is not an issue that has gone away and it's uh, a concern and rather there's been a disengagement, there's not been a de-escalation. Thanks, that's a great and comprehensive answer to AB's question. Um, continuing our dialogue, we've got about eight more minutes and perhaps uh, some of the other participants uh, will be sending in questions, but uh, uh, let me uh, ask them uh, this. Uh, there's a recent press story that India's population uh, either has or will shortly overtake uh, China's, which raises the tantalizing question of whether India's economy has the potential uh, uh, at any foreseeable time to also overtake China's, uh, which would be actually, of course, uh, a contrast between two very distinct models of uh, economic development and, and growth, uh, China's being uh, much more uh, state determined and driven than India's. Um, and of course, with both of those considerations, the question of whether India can really in geopolitical calculations ever serve as a kind of counterweight to China, uh, if that's not too cynical a calculation to uh, uh, express. What do you think about all of that? There are some big questions in there. Uh, yes. The economies of the two countries 40 years ago were on the same level, maybe even 30 years ago. And then the Chinese really took off and the Indians have only gradually grown. In part, as I said, I think it's China opened its economy, welcomed uh, Western uh, investment in technology and the like. Uh, and I think at this point, uh, there's very little chance that India's economy will catch up to China's anytime soon. There obviously is the great hope that a country of 1.4 billion with the talent that the Indians have will continue to grow economically and be a, a, an expanding market, which is why you have so many companies operating in India, but it still is a difficult place to operate. It's got a, a heavy regulatory structure. It's got uncertain regulations. It's got barriers. Uh, to trade and doing business. Uh, its infrastructure is not as good as one would like. It's got labor law issues. Uh, and so uh, the economy itself uh, is, I think, now the fifth largest in the world. There were aspirations of becoming a $5 trillion economy relatively soon, but COVID has really also dealt a severe blow. The economy was slowing down before that. It had the most severe contraction of any major economy uh, last year. Uh, it thought it was coming out of this, but the second wave is going to really hit that economy again uh, strongly. And so I think India is going to take a while to have to build back up again. Uh, it's got a dynamic population. Uh, as you know, many Indian Americans contribute greatly to the United States. I'd love to see an environment in that country where they'd stay and contribute to the Indian economy as well. But 
uh, it's a real opportunity for India as companies around the world are concerned about expanding further or even going to China. India has the opportunity to become an investment and trading hub for the region. It's got to create the right conditions internally to attract that. Currently, some of the other countries, such as Vietnam, Indonesia, and others, have uh, had a leg up in terms of attracting some of the investment that India would like to see. But this is the great promise of India and the great hope for the future is that its economy will continue to expand and grow, but I don't think at the rate that the Chinese have, uh, uh, but it still has a lot of, a lot of running room. Well, thank you very much. Another topic that we haven't really touched on as far as I recall, um, uh, but that strikes me as important is uh, the topic of terrorism, uh, since India has actually um, uh, uh, experienced a, a very severe case uh, a few years ago in the uh, terror attack on the Taj uh, Hotel in Mumbai, um, dramatized uh, subsequently in a riveting movie, by the way. Um, uh, that, of course, is a few years in the past, but what's India's current posture with respect to the threat of domestic terrorism uh, and I, uh, presumably imputed to Muslim extremists, presumably in Pakistan? Uh, what is the terrorism situation? What is the government's response? Yeah, I, I would say that they would not view that as domestic terrorism. They would view that as cross-border terrorism from uh, Pakistan. And this is a great concern to India, and it's really been what has inhibited the Indian-Pakistani relationship from getting better is the lack of the ability of the Pakistanis to control terrorism coming across the border. And the Indians uh, focus on this. It's been an issue of concern to them, and they've been in the chair at the Security Council of the UN, where they now are. They're a member of the Security Council for two years and chairing it uh, for a period of time. They wanted to focus on counterterrorism, and they're very concerned about issues in Afghanistan. We haven't discussed Afghanistan yet, but that's an issue of great uh, focus of their attention. And as the United States pulls out of Afghanistan, the concern of India is that some of the terrorists operating there may come over uh, to the Indian area, that the Pakistanis may have a greater influence in Afghanistan in a way that the Indians will not uh, benefit from. And they're working hard to try to make sure that the Afghan people uh, have control of the process that will hopefully bring stability to that region. But uh, we deal closely with India on counterterrorism issues. That's an area that we uh, significantly enhance the relationship. And it's one of great focus to them, worrying about ISIS there, uh, uh, and, and other terrorists, uh, uh, Al-Qaeda and other terrorist uh, organizations uh, in India. And they follow it closely, especially with regard to cross-border terrorism. Thank you. Uh, Diana Lady Dugan has posed uh, a, a question for which I think we have just time before we conclude. Let me share it with you. Uh, to what extent is India developing its own digital currency through central bank uh, or uh, in collaboration with various Indian mega companies, et cetera? Yeah, I'm not aware that India is developing a digital currency, but I may be just ignorant on this issue. It's not one that I follow closely. India certainly has a number of companies involved in financial technology and uh, focuses on the technology side of finance, but I'm not sure. I believe they even issued 
some uh, regulation outlawing cryptocurrencies, uh, but whether they're trying to develop a national digital currency, I don't know. This is an issue where the United States and India should really be sitting down and talking about the digital economy more broadly. We both have very sophisticated technology uh, industries that played a key role in our economic development. And it would be important for us collectively to try to set some of the rules of the road, whether it be on digital currencies or more broadly on some of the digital issues uh, in the technology world. Well, Ken, thank you for addressing that question. And uh, it brings us, as it happens, to the end of our time, right on the money. So thank you very much uh, uh, for such an enlightening and engaging presentation this afternoon on certainly one of the most important countries in the world and one of our most important developing relationships, as you've underscored. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, our audience today for uh, tuning in, uh, uh, for uh, logging in uh, to uh, uh, Ken's presentation of this uh, Council of American Ambassadors Roundtable, and to thank Kathleen Sheehan uh, and Jocelyn Young of our staff uh, for putting this together. So Ken, again, thank you for a very enlightening presentation, and uh, we look forward to engaging you in future council activities. Thank you, I can now get on the boat and take a short boat ride back to my home. Okay, there in the background. Take yeah. care. And thank you. Uh, thanks Appreciate to everyone. It.